I vividly remember the day. It was the first day of public worship at Christ Church East in the Alhambra Dinner Theater on Beach Boulevard. Some of you remember that day. And it was a joyous day. We had planned, we had prayed, we had gathered for months over the summer, and finally the day came that we gathered for worship. And it was wonderful, had a great turnout. We worshiped at tables in the Alhambra Dinner Theater. We dropped our kids off in the nursery, which was the liquor lounge. It was just a wonderful place for a church plant. It was truly a great day. And I remember when Kim and I drove home that day, there was just a ton of rejoicing. But that changed quickly because that afternoon, Kim miscarried. And so we went from this joy of joys to this utter sadness and despair. Felt like the joy was just ripped out from underneath us in a matter of hours. And I remember that day because it's illustrative of the broken world that we live in. That joy can be so circumstantial. That joy can seem to be so fleeting. And that when you've had those kind of experiences a number of different times, you begin to guard your heart. You begin to, to take a vow, I'm just not gonna rejoice again because it hurts too much to have joy taken away. And so it raises the question, is there a joy that cannot be stolen by circumstances? Is there a joy that is lasting, that is deep, that is immune to circumstances? The answer from Nehemiah 8 is, Yes, there is. Because this is a chapter about a people who have, for, for years, decades, even 100 years, ridden the train of circumstances. They've been in exile. They've been back. They've been up. They've been down. And yet there's a joy that's described in this chapter that transcends all of that. And in a world where you and I day-to-day -day face circumstances and situations that vie to strip our joy, and to take it away, there is a word here for us. And that is what produces deep and lasting joy. First, deep and lasting joy is produced by hearing Christ's word. Now, remember the context of what is happening here. Over a hundred years earlier, God's people had been taken into exile in Babylon. Babylonians came in, they destroyed their city, Jerusalem. They destroyed their temple. They destroyed their houses. Jerusalem was absolutely war-torn. They were in exile for 70 years in Babylon, away from home, in a foreign place. And after 70 years, they began to come back in waves. But they came back to a Jerusalem that was broken down. It was in shambles. And yet, we have seen through this study of Nehemiah, through Nehemiah's leadership, that the walls of the city actually got rebuilt. And we learn from the book of Ezra that the temple had been rebuilt and that their homes had been rebuilt. And you say, wow, this is all wonderful. What else would they need? The walls rebuilt, the temples rebuilt, their homes are rebuilt, they're living in their homes, they're living in their towns. 
You say, isn't that good? Yet we see here in chapter 8, what happens here reveals one of the core needs of human beings. And actually, one of the core things that produces lasting and deep joy. In verse 2, Ezra the priest stands before both men and women, all who could understand what they heard. That would include children. And he read God's word to them, the book of the law of Moses. That's the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And then we note in verse 3, he read it from early morning until midday. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, how did the people respond to this? Look at verse 6. The people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then we learn in verse 9 that they, they actually wept. They cried. This was a people that had been in exile physically and spiritually. They hear God's word and they verbally, physically, and emotionally respond to God's word. And this is not the first time it's happened because several hundred years earlier, before they went into exile, we read in 2 Kings 22 that King Josiah was making repairs to the temple. And as the repairs were being made to the temple, it says they found the book of the law. They found God's word. And the servants brought it back to Josiah and they started reading it to King Josiah. And it says he tore his clothes and immediately ordered all the statues of idol worship to be taken out of the temple and smashed and burned. Once again, physical, emotional, verbal response to God's word. And what we see in both of these situations is God's word breaks through an empty and dead religiosity. Before Ezra read the word of God to the people, the wall was done. The temple was done. All the religious structures were in place. In King Josiah's day, he had repaired the temple. All the religious structures were in place. But as we learn in, in 2 Kings 22, inside the temple were all these statues to false gods. There was idol worship going on. And what we see here and what this reveals is how easy it is to live out an empty or a dead religiosity, to have the outward behavior of religiosity in place, but on the inside be dead. Dead to God, alive to idols. And the word of God breaks through that. Now, why does it? Why does the word of God produce a, a verbal, a physical, an emotional response? Why does it bring revival to the heart? Well, the answer is hidden in verses one and three. If you look at verses one and three, where did the people gather to hear God's word? They gathered at the water gate. And the water gate reminds us and brings up the imagery of Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 47. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet of God who spoke to God's people, and he spoke to them while they were in exile in Babylon. And in Ezekiel's prophecy, he talks about water, the vision God had given him, water flowing from the threshold of the temple. 
And this water that comes out of the threshold of the temple starts as a small flow, and then it becomes this vast river. And God tells Ezekiel, everything will live where the river goes. Jesus is the gate from which the water flows. You say, how do you know that? Because in John chapter seven, when they are celebrating the Feast of Booths, which we're gonna get to in detail, that's what they're celebrating here in chapter eight of Nehemiah. The Feast of Booths, it's a, it was a week-long feast. John seven says that the, on the last day of the Feast of Booths, Jesus stands up. He stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The reason that the word of God, the word of Christ brings revival is because your soul is thirsty for it. Now, I say that whether you know that or not or whether you believe that or not. Because you were made by Christ and for Christ, you are thirsty to hear his word. You're thirsty to hear him speak to you. But the reality is, and we're all, we all know what this is like, that we go to other fountains to drink from. We look to other fountains to quench that thirst, whether it be money or sex or money or work or play, whatever it may be. And the reality is all those other fountains actually leave us more thirsty. When God was taking his people from the wilderness into the promised land, Right before he was gonna take them into a place where there's gonna be all kinds of abundant provision. 40 years in the desert. And they had nothing except that God would provide their food every day. He's about to take them into the land that flows with milk and honey. They're about to have everything. Listen to what he says to them to prepare them before they go in. In Deuteronomy. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In Palestine today, you would see a scene that, that surely Jesus witnessed thousands of years ago when he walked on this earth. And that is the scene of shepherds that have multiple flocks of sheep that take their, their sheep out to graze and to drink and to feed them and nourish them. And what typically happens at the end of the day, a, a lot of different flocks of sheep will find their way to one watering hole. And so the flocks are all intermingled, but it doesn't, it doesn't stress the shepherds because at the end of the day, when they're ready to go home, they issue a distinct call. And their sheep will make their way out of the crowd and follow the shepherd home. They know to whom they belong, they know his voice, and they follow him. Jesus is the great shepherd, and you are thirsty for his voice. We live in a world that is full of crowds, full of noise, full of voices. Do you know every day you hear from social media, from your workplace, from, you hear all kinds of messages and yet the voice of Christ is what you long to hear in the midst of all that. And he calls, and he calls through his word. And life can get busy, 
And sometimes we think the busyness will take away the pain and restore our joy, and it doesn't. Jesus' voice and Jesus' word is what restores our joy and what gives us deep and lasting joy in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the circumstances that we face. So what produces deep and lasting joy? First, hearing Christ's word. Second, experiencing Christ's rescue. One of the striking observations in verses one to eight is how many times the word understand is used. It's used over and over. In verse seven, it describes how these 13 Levites would make their way out amongst the crowd. And they would go out and they would explain God's word. So as it was being read, these Levites were out moving around, helping people to understand it. Then we get to verse eight. It says, they, they read from the book, the law of God, clearly, that word literally, literally means paragraph by paragraph, with interpretation. And they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. Now, how did they respond to the hearing and to the understanding? That's important. They didn't just hear God's word, but it was explained to them. And it says, as they heard it and they understood it, verse nine, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, why? Why were they weeping? Well, they were weeping over their sin. And we see a picture of this in Lamentations chapter five, verses 15 to 17. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this heart, this our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. They weep over their sin. And yet, right in the middle of their weeping over their sin, right in the middle of that, Ezra says in verse 9, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. You see, this was a feast day. This was the beginning of a week-long feast called the Feast of Booths. And Israel, every year, would celebrate different feasts to remember what God had done to save them. And this was one of them. And of all the feasts, this one was actually the most joyous feast because they would celebrate their delivery out of Egypt and God's faithfulness in the desert. And so Ezra says, this is not a time for weeping. This is a time for rejoicing. He goes on, verse 10. It's not just rejoicing, it's a party. Right? Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, here's the question. How are they supposed to go from weeping over their sin to rejoicing and partying? How does that happen? Well, King David makes that turn in one of his Psalms. It's actually Psalm 30. He makes that turn from weeping to rejoicing, from mourning to dancing. Listen to a couple of verses of, of how King David makes this turn. Oh Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life among those who go down to the pit. Verse eight, to you, O oh Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. Verse 11, here it is. 
You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory might sing your praise and not be silent. What turned David's mourning into rejoicing? It was his recognition that God and God alone had rescued him from the pit. David wasn't rejoicing and dancing because he was proud of how he had rescued himself. We learned something so important here about joy, that joy is not manufactured. It's received. It's not manufactured or produced by you. It's actually received. Ezra says it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. It's his joy, but we have to receive it. Now, here's the problem. There's a number of ways that we try to manufacture joy in the midst of our weeping over sin or being convicted over sin or being guilty or shamed over sin. There's a number of ways. Let me give you a couple. One is this, that when you find yourself weeping over sin, convicted, truly convicted about your sin, you can attempt to root your joy in good intentions to not do it again. You can say, hey, you know, Lord, forgive me, and I'm gonna work really hard now to never do this again and try to root your joy in what I would call there just sheer willpower. I am not gonna do this again, and that's where my joy is gonna come from. That's one way we can try to manufacture joy. Let me give you another one. The other is you can root your joy in your future performance. And that goes something like this. I blew it, I failed, I've sinned. But if I can just, if I can, with willpower, also get a, get a good stretch of not sinning, that if I get a good stretch, a good season of performance, then I'll rejoice. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be glad. The problem is Paul, the apostle Paul, right, wrote an entire letter to a church in Galatia about this very problem. And he says in chapter four to the Galatians, he says, what happened to all of your joy? I mean, it's just Paul saying, you, you've become a pretty sad, crusty, complaining bunch. Where's your joy? And he answers it in Galatians 3. He says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected or sanctified by the flesh? Paul's saying, have you lost... The reason you've lost your joy is you've forgotten the gospel. That you have turned the Christian life into one of performance. Whatever version that may be. Sheer willpower. Sheer performance. I'm going to find my joy. I'm going to manufacture my joy by how I recover. Problem is joy is received. And joy is received when you experience Christ's rescue afresh and anew in your life. Our son is adopted. He's coming up on his sixth birthday. We adopted him at birth. It's not a secret. We have told him from an early age that he's adopted. That's part of his story. And I will never forget, as we started to explain this to our son, that he's adopted. 
the words that my wife, Kim, used to explain it to him. And if you would just spare me, I want to read it because it's beautiful and I will mess it up if I don't read it. Buddy, you started in the heart and the mind of God. That's where everyone starts. But mommy's belly broke. And so he chose someone else's belly to bring you into this family. You were always meant to belong to us. So when we found out you were here on earth and where you were, we got in the car and drove really fast to come get you. And then she made these extreme fast car noises. What it was like for us to get in the car and to come get him. And then she, and then she said, and when we saw you, we hugged you tight and brought you home. And do you know that we went through a season with our son? Often, where he would say, mommy, daddy, with a big grin on his face, with joy on his face, can you tell me the story again of how you came to get me? Listen, what will produce joy in your life is when you hear Jesus Christ tell the story over and over how he came to get you. You can't manufacture that joy. You receive it from Christ, and he is glad over and over, and he does it through his word to tell you how he came to get you and rescue you. And when you, and when you rest in that, you will find a joy that there is no circumstance that will take it away. I want you to put on your imagination caps for a moment. I want you to imagine the Jaguars win the Super Bowl. That's why I'm telling you to put your imagination caps on. <laughs> I want you to imagine you throw a watching party for the Super Bowl with a bunch of your friends and you watch the game. First quarter, Jags go up by a touchdown. Second quarter, they go down by a touchdown. By halftime, they're down by 10. Third quarter, they come storming back. They score two touchdowns. They go up. Fourth quarter, they're down again by six, final two minutes. They're down by six, last minute, two minute drive. And with time expiring, they score a touchdown and they kick the extra point to win the Super Bowl. And your house absolutely explodes in celebration. And you spent four quarters having multiple mini heart attacks the whole time. Now, I want you to imagine that two weeks later, you have a reunion watching party where you watch this game again. And at the end of the first quarter, anytime there's a good intermission, into the first quarter, you turn the music on, you start dancing, and you're celebrating. At halftime, when they're down by 10, you turn the music on, you're dancing, you're having a celebration. Same thing happens at the end of the third quarter. The point is, you, you have these many celebrations in the middle of the story. You don't just wait till the end. 
the feasts that God called Israel to participate in every, every year were many celebrations in the middle of the story. And these celebrations, like this one, the Feast of Booths, was not a celebration of Israel's performance, past, present, or future. They weren't done with their rebellion and idolatry. They would sin again. Same is true. There is a big party coming at the end of time. It's a celebration. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will sit and dine and celebrate with Jesus what? A salvation accomplished. And yet God gives us little celebrations in the middle of the story. He calls it the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a celebration of your good intentions. The Lord's Supper is not a celebration of your performance. It is a celebration of a salvation that has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And that's why your weeping over your sin can instantly turn to rejoicing and celebrating because salvation has already been accomplished. And God gives us, just like he did with Israel in the feast, he gives it to us with the Lord's Supper. He gives it to us weekly with corporate worship. Times to celebrate a salvation that has already been accomplished. That's what will produce joy. Because that's a joy received. That's the joy of the Lord. It's not a manufactured joy. So what produces deep and lasting joy? It's hearing Christ's voice. That's the one voice that your soul thirsts to hear. And you don't have to go try to listen, find. It's right here. He speaks through his word. Experiencing his rescue over and over is what brings joy. It's what turns your weeping over sin into celebration and rejoicing. And then finally, remembering Christ's grace. So starting in verse 13, we see the details of this feast of booths come about. Look at verse 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And then verses 15 and 16 describe how they, they made these little tents out of leafy branches. Little tents, and they stayed in them for an entire week. What's striking is in verse 17, we read they hadn't done this since the time of Joshua. Now, evidently, they had somewhat celebrated the Feast of Booze or, or, or at least gathering, but they had totally dropped the making tents and staying in tents for a week. It would be like us just not celebrating the Lord's Supper for a couple of years. Just dropping it. That's what had happened. What was the Feast of Booths? It was to remind God's people that they had been rescued out of Egypt, and it was to remind them that he had taken them through the wilderness for 40 years and fed them at night in the morning. He supplied all their needs. And so he established this feast so that when they left the wilderness, 
and went into the promised land where there was abundant provision, land flowing with milk and honey, that they wouldn't forget where they came from. And they wouldn't begin taking credit for the abundant provision themselves. That was the purpose of the Feast of Booths. Get them out of their comfortable homes and stay in this makeshift tent for a week so that they would remember that all the good they had, their homes, everything was a work of God's grace. They didn't own any of it. They couldn't take credit for any of it. Everything good came from his gracious hand. And here's what's striking. Into verse 17, after they start doing this, they make the tents and they're staying in the tents out of their comfortable homes. It says in verse 17, and there was very great rejoicing. There is tremendous joy and tremendous freedom when you understand and functionally believe that everything you have and everything you are is a product of God's free grace. Your job, your home, your intellect, your success, your money, your family, your children, everything is a work of his grace. When we start to fall into taking credit for things, taking credit for our success, I worked really hard for that. Taking credit for our wealth, I worked a lifetime to build this up. Taking credit for our, our intellect, how smart I am, look what I was able to do. Taking credit for the power we've been given. All of that produces pride, and you know what pride does? Pride strips joy and replaces it with fear and anxiety because you actually have something to lose now. If you worked hard to procure it, guess what? You could fail to work hard enough to keep it. And so fear and anxiety creeps in when you lose sight of the fact that everything, everything is a work of God's free grace. It's the difference between when you work really hard for something, you sacrifice, you work hard, blood, sweat, tears, and you finally are able to acquire this possession, whatever it is, very different how you treat that, pos that possession than when that possession is given to you as a free gift. See, when you think you work really hard and you take credit for it, you white-knuckle it. When it's a free gift that's been given to you, you hold it a lot more loosely. There is a tremendous amount of deep and lasting joy that you receive when you understand that everything you have and everything you are is a work of God's grace. When you hear Christ's word, when you hear that word that your soul is thirsty for, when you experience his rescue afresh and anew on the heels of weeping over your sin, and you, when you remember Christ's grace, that everything in your life is a work of his free grace, you will receive, not manufacture, you will receive a deep and lasting joy that cannot be stolen by circumstances. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the same place that God's people were in Nehemiah 8. 
Some of us come with all the outward expressions of religiosity in place. Our church attendance, our community group attendance, our, our tithing, our, all the outward displays are there, but we're dead on the inside. We're hungry. We're hungry to hear from you, Jesus. We're thirsty. Would you draw us deeply into your word? Father, there's many of us who are in the, the grips of sin, maybe not weeping, but, but grieving. And we have attempted to manufacture joy by asserting our willpower and our, our good intentions, by trying to, to perform. And it's left us with less joy, more grief, more anxiety. Father, many of us have quietly adopted this taking credit for things in our lives. And it's left us fearful and anxious. We come to you, and like the Israelites did in Nehemiah 8, we bow to you. We confess our sin. We can't manage it. We don't want to manage it. We lay it before you. We lay before you, Father, our apathy our busyness, all the things that have kept us from experiencing the joy of the Lord. And we ask that you would speak to us, that we would experience your rescue, Jesus, afresh and anew, that we would remember your grace, and that as all this happens, that one, we would experience great joy that can't be stolen by circumstances, and number two, that we would actually see our obedience increase that we would see our lives more and more reflect your design for them. Father, as we close in worship, we proclaim that it is by grace and grace alone that we're here. We proclaim your salvation that was accomplished on the cross and that your salvation and your glory are our good. In Christ's name, amen.